0: Uh, thousands of people that are now following Jesus and part of this little community that we call the church. Uh, and last week, if you were here, uh, and if you weren't, I'll tell you what happened, we saw uh, the, the remarkable growth in a different way. Uh, someone is mysteriously, miraculously, wonderfully healed. Uh, the apostles oversee this, and uh, it's a wonderful sign that in Jesus there's restoration, there's new life. And as many have cynically said over the years, it seems to be the case that no good deed goes unpunished. And uh, what we find this week is hostility. People are upset that this good thing has been done. And it raises the question, and Jesus raises the question while he was on Earth, basically saying, "Hey, if, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to seek to live a godly life, there will be trouble. There will be persecution." So that's the question for us tonight. If we're going to love Jesus and love others and try to be a part of the good thing he's doing in the world, how are we going to deal with the reality of fear? The reality of living in fear, okay? So I'll be reading almost all of chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. Let's uh, dig in. As they were speaking, this is uh, Peter and John, they're still preaching from last week, It's a very long sermon. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already the evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. And all were who are of the high priestly family. And when they set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This stone, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition." Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported it with the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices to God and said, "Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. and They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Great Father, we ask you show us wonderful things in this your word. Be kind, Lord, to sharpen our minds and soften our hearts. Show us your love. Show us your good plan. Uh, Break through our cynicism. Break through our hard-heartedness. Give us the love for others that you have for your people. We ask you, sing your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to take you to a scary place. Warning, this may trigger some of you. scary place is Epimax Elementary School, 6th grade boys' bathroom. I was there. Yeah, a long time ago, and uh, I was on my way to lunch, and I had had to stop by the bathroom. And this trip to the, ba- the bathroom was complicated for a couple of reasons. First of all, it was after Easter, which means my pocket was full of chocolate footballs. Those little chocolate footballs, yeah, and they'd all melted. It was a disaster. It looks like I pooped my pants only in the front. It was, a, it was awful, and I didn't know what to do about it. And secondly, I was a very quiet, shy kid who never wanted to get in trouble. So I was afraid that I was being delayed too long cleaning up this mess and I was going to get in trouble with my teacher for not getting back in line. So I come running out and then I realize that between my class and me is another class already in line for lunch. And I'm conflicted. I don't know what to do. Because for seven years now, I've been told, this is line etiquette, you don't break in line, right? So do I break in line and maybe get in trouble? Or do I stay back behind this other class and my teacher wonders where I am and then I get in trouble? Well, I decided the most courteous thing to do is wait at the end of the line. And a few minutes later as I'm waiting, I'm like, I'm never going to get to eat today, but so be it. As I'm uh, waiting at the end of the line, uh, lost in my own thoughts as I usually was, um, all of a sudden there's a commotion in front of me. I barely notice it until... That class's teacher comes storming back. Now I think, oh no, someone's going to get it. And who gets it is me. She assumes I'm the cause of the disturbance. I don't belong there after all. And she chews me out. Now on a good day, this teacher was terrifying. And it was a bad day. And uh, she, uh, I don't remember everything she said. I just remember being terrified. And then like half physically dragged by her, passed the line into the cafeteria, where I was promptly confronted uh, by her to my real teacher, and this not teacher of mine who's very angry at me, proceeded to accuse me of all this wrongdoing. Now, I, uh, I was humiliated and confused and afraid, but I was also angry, because <laughs> I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, I was innocent. But I learned some important life lessons that day, like... You know, sometimes doing good is not always appreciated. That's what had happened. I hadn't done anything wrong. I was doing something good. Um, Sometimes you suffer for doing good. And I also learned that day that sometimes the authorities can be very scary. And we see that in our text. Persecution's reality in this text. It's a reality in the world. And this church here in Acts 4 lives under the threat, the real threat... Of uh, persecution, so fear is a possibility, and there's a temptation when there's fear to run away, to cower, or to compromise, or to respond angrily and uh, with hostility. The question is pretty simple, even though the situation's hard. How do we live in a world that's often hostile to Jesus? How do we live in a world that's often hostile to Jesus? And we're going to see tonight that because Jesus is good, we can care and we can share courageously. Okay? Because Jesus is in charge, I don't know what I said, because Jesus is in charge, we can care and share courageously. So we're asking ourselves first, who's in charge? And then secondly, uh, how do we live with courage? What does that look like? Okay? So uh, again, this happens right after Peter and John have miraculously healed this guy. He's been prancing through the temple. Literally, you go back and read it. He's like prancing through the temple. Uh, everyone notices, and everyone's listening, trying to figure out what's going on. And so Peter has a massive crowd as he is teaching, speaking. In verse one, when uh, the people with power show up, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees were told came upon them, and uh, yeah, that, that sounds threatening. That's exactly what happened. Um, You know, the the priests run the temple. The Sadducees are the ruling elite family. The captain of the temple, you know, that's like the sheriff. He's the head of the temple police. And uh, they come, as the text tells us, like that school teacher, greatly annoyed, uh, very disturbed. They are ticked. And the text tells us they're ticked because Peter and John are teaching Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. We thought we were done with this guy. And uh, in verse 3, they exercise their authority. They, uh, they don't have time to, to do a trial tonight, but we can still throw you in the slammer. And so they arrest Peter and John and throw them in the slammer for the night. And in the morning, uh, they gather everyone together. That's what happens in verses 5 and 6. This is the whole, what's called the Sanhedrin. All the leaders get together, and, and the big dogs are there. Annas and Sophia and uh, let's see, Ananias and uh, Caiaphas. These names are familiar to you. Uh, it's because they show up in Luke. They oversaw the trial. Of Jesus and his death. Same crowd. This wasn't that long ago. In other words, Peter and John have every reason not to expect a fair trial. Um, this is a, a fairly frightening situation to be in. And they ask in verse 7, by what authority or by what name did you do this? And by this they mean heal this man and then, you know, the spectacle of your preaching for the last couple hours. What they're asking is, who gave you the right to do this? Because this is our temple. This is our business. This is what we do. Who gave you the right to do this? And in verse 18, they throw their weight around. We're the authorities. And they charge them, you you may not teach this name anymore. You cannot speak of Jesus anymore. Do you understand? And and Peter and John are like, yeah, we understand. No, we're not going to listen to you anyway. (laughs) We'll get to them in a moment. The question is, are these guys really in charge? Are they really in charge? A a couple clues that are not nearly as in charge as they think they are. In verse 4, they arrest Peter and John, but it doesn't do much good. Because we're told in the same verse that all kinds of people believe. Like thousands more believe that day. You can arrest the leaders, you're not arresting the movement. It's still growing. And then in verse 21, a really interesting note, they're they're really conflicted. You know, they don't know what to do with these guys, so they kick them out and they confer together and they're like, what do we do? Because it's clear they healed this guy. Notice that this is not contested in any way. No one here is disputing whether or not this dude was miraculously healed. Thousands of witnesses. They're not disputing it. They, They know it happened. We know that guy. He's been around here for 40 years. The dispute is, what do we do with them? And they don't know what to do with them, the text tells us, because they're afraid of the people. Verse 21. Because of the people, because of the people, they don't know what to do. In other words, the authorities aren't in charge. Because they're afraid of the people. They're afraid of popular opinion. You're not really in charge if you're afraid of popular opinion. Well, they're not in charge. Then maybe it's Peter and the apostles, are they in charge? Um You know they're arrested in verse four, but their cause continues. Growth happens. It's awesome. It's amazing. And then in verse thirteen, when they're called before the Sanhedrin, it would have been incredibly intimidating. It would have been like more of you in a big semicircle, only older, um, like all like all interrogating me at once. Um, You know, seventy or eighty elders, powerful, influential, and I know you're already predisposed to dislike me. uh, All interrogating me at once. That was the situation. And uh, we're told in verse 13, they are unfazed, they are bold, they are clear, they are not afraid. We're also told that they are so astute, so clear in their speech, that uh, those interrogating them notice like, wait, wait, these guys are from Galilee, they are backwood hicks, they are not supposed to sound like this. They're not supposed to talk like this. And it concludes here that they recognize they've been with Jesus, uh, in other words, being with Jesus is an education in itself. Uh, I had a friend uh, in ministry years ago, he's much older than me, who was the campus pastor for RUF at Vanderbilt. If you don't know, Vanderbilt's a very good school. My friend, on the other hand, if you ever met him, you'd think, y- you might not be able to get a job like cleaning the floors in Vanderbilt. Um, he's actually a very, very bright pastor, very gifted. But when you meet him, the first thing you meet is this deep southern drawl. And, uh, he's very emotionally intelligent, very, uh, relationally intelligent, but probably not the person you would naturally put at Vanderbilt. But he had been there for years when, uh, one of the school administrators met him one day and he introduced himself. Because he's the kind of person that would know everyone at the whole school. That's how he's wired. And, uh, this was not a person who was a Christian or necessarily friendly to Christians. He was a school administrator and, uh... She asked who he was, and he's like, oh, I'm the pastor for RUF. And she said, RUF. Those students were fantastic. I don't know what you're doing, but it is producing remarkable people on our campus. Now, that's because the gospel rightly taught and understood changes people. It's an education in itself. It's beautiful, and it changes Peter and John in such a way that that the leaders who don't like Jesus are like what what, what did ha- what's happened to these people who are they and of course there is the sign itself in verse 16 they've done this notable undeniable sign we we can't dispute it so are Peter and John in charge well no no absolutely not they they make it pretty clear themselves that hey um you know, this is not us. It's not by our power we do this. It's, it's Jesus. When, when they're asked, who gives you the right in verse 7? They say, um, it was Jesus. He did it. It's by his power that we do this. And it's by the work of the Holy Spirit in them that they speak this way. And when they're released, finally, and they go back uh, to their friends and begin to pray, then we actually see who's really at charge. Who's really at charge is the sovereign Lord. That's what God is called. Uh, down here in verse 24, they pray to the sovereign Lord. Now, you know, I've been praying for a long time. Not not that I've always prayed, but I've been a Christian for a long time. And I'm used to people praying to their heavenly father. Even occasionally something as familial as daddy makes me a little uncomfortable. But it's it's right. Uh, but almost no one prays to the sovereign Lord. Um. But they do. And that's not to say it's the only way to pray. But they are seizing on something that is very, very important, which is there is a God and he's in charge. And and even the verbs that they sort of talk about here in the verses that follow, you are the sovereign Lord, verse 24, who made everything. You made the seas and the heavens and the earth and everything. You made it all. You're the Lord of creation. And in verse 25, you're the sovereign Lord who said by the Spirit... You're the God that speaks. You're the Lord of revelation. And then verse twenty seven, you're the sovereign Lord who anointed a king. You've chosen Jesus. He's the chosen Lord. He's the King. And then verse 28, He's a sovereign Lord who does whatever He predestines, whatever He plans. He is the Lord of history. He's in charge. There's not there's not a, a square inch of the world where where God is not in charge. And, uh, it's this God that they pray to, that they find confidence in. And, uh, in verse 31, I love this last verse. It's the very last verse. These people that are praying, they're praying for God's power. They're praying for his equipment. They're praying for courage. And this sovereign Lord tells we're told fills them with the spirit that they might continue to preach. And, uh, man, what, what this means friends is that, uh, The arresting authorities, the people that seem to be in power, have, you know, ratcheted up the pressure of suppression in order to arrest a movement of the growth, the growth of the group. And so the people go and pray and God says, "Okay, let's see, oppression's happened. What do we do now? How about we equip a lot more people to do exactly what Peter and John did to get in trouble? In other words, exactly what the arresting authorities were trying to prevent, God is reversing. Um, It may appear appear that the world's authorities are in control. They've rejected Jesus. He died. But we're told here that was God's plan. It may appear they're slowing down the efforts. They're they're, uh, suppressing the growth. Nope. God's actually expanding operations right now, equipping His people to, to join the same kind of beautiful work. I, I don't know how much you follow the news. Um, you know, Following the news is different now than it used to be. You used to follow the news, and you just got the news. But, but it's not like that anymore. You follow the news, and you get takes and spins and all kinds of other stuff. But back in December, you may have been aware of uh, numerous stories coming out of China. A particular church is being persecuted. I don't know if you were aware of this. It, it was, you know, not just kind of thing that would appear like on a Christian news site. It was like in BBC and CNN, and uh, these reports continued to come out. And uh, one of those churches is uh, called the Early Rain uh, Christian Church. Um, this this uh, small little movement of churches in China is actually not too distant in relationship from my own denomination and a sister denomination. But they detail in a letter that they write to like the worldwide church, what's happening. And they say stuff like, uh, Dear brothers and sisters, we trust you've heard news that since December 9th, 2018, Early Rain Covenant Church, a church that belongs to Jesus, has been attacked and persecuted by the authorities. They detail some of what that looks like. 47 of us have been detained, and two sisters have been strip searched, and one is now at the hospital delivering a baby, while our husband's been out of contact for three days. We we're being uh, per, while we we're being released, we we're also under surveillance. The government seized our property and other facilities. Closed down the seminary, closed down the college, and so on. And uh, it's it's a really interesting letter and very uh, I don't I hate the word impactful because I'm pretty sure it's not a real word, but it's a uh, it's, uh, it's a significant letter. But um, one two things they say that really sort of arrest my attention. I stole that. It's the text informing. Grab my attention is this. They say, what we most need is to go before the presence of God through prayer that we might receive power to be witnesses to the Lord. That's exactly what the people in Acts 4 pray for. They don't pray for safety. They don't pray for an end to their trials. They pray, God, give us more boldness that we might share your good news. And they conclude, actually, Uh, With this, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Uh, That's a really interesting way to end a letter. But this is what I think they're doing. And this is what I love. We think to get courage, we need more of me. Like if I'm afraid, I have a little me. And, And to get more courage, I need to be a bigger version of me. A bigger, better version of me. I've got to muster up the courage. And that is not at all what's happening here in this text or in this letter. What you need is a bigger God. What you need is to realize just how great the Lord is, how powerful He is, how good He is. These churches realize it and they're unafraid. And they go out caring and sharing even for their enemies. Because God is good, and God is great to them. Okay, so what does it look like to live with courage? And these are just a couple points. I'll throw them out pretty quickly. Uh, If God is great, and he's big, and he's powerful, and he's sovereign, uh, we can live with courage. And that means sharing and caring with charity. It's very interesting that while Peter and John are being interrogated by the same people that killed their leader, Jesus, that they're not angry angry. They're not hostile. Do you see Peter and John, anyone here, being accusatory? I mean, they, they do say, like, you killed them. But they're not, because well, they did. But they're not being <laughs> super nasty about it. They're not being nasty. They're not being condescending. They're not being disdainful. Actually, they're being pretty respectful. They, they, they actually acknowledge them. Rulers of the elders and the people. They're being charitable. They're treating them with dignity and respect. Because they're created in the image of God. Because Jesus commanded us to love our, our enemies. And so living with courage in a world that's hostile to Jesus means being charitable to everyone pretty much all the time. And, and we see Peter and John doing this. But it also means uh, living with conviction. That when these same uh, leaders, these authorities say, you can't speak in his name anymore. They reply, well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, You must judge. Meaning, we've already made up our minds. We're not listening to you. Because we have to listen to God. Our consciences are bound. He is our Lord. You're not. Sorry, wish I could help you. Unfortunately, you're wrong. And I have to follow what God tells me to do. So, despite the threat, they move forward, they follow God's command. Under the conviction that God wants them to care and share the good news of what Jesus has done. And so living with courage means uh, having conviction and speaking with clarity about who Jesus is. And you see this in verses 8 through 12. They ask, um, by what right did you do this? Who do you think you are? And Peter gives a mini-sermon on Jesus. Like he can't help himself. He like starts preaching almost again. He's speaking clearly. Not about himself, not about the miracle, not about the healed man who's still there. He's speaking clearly about Jesus, and uh, you know he, he brings up the important points here. This Jesus that you crucified, God raised. Also, we we'll find out later that's part of the plan. Like he had to live and die, that he might bear sin, that we might be forgiven. That was God's plan. It was a death that he died that we deserved, that we might share his life. And he goes on and says in verse 11, you know, he's the cornerstone. Um, This is Old Testament language from Psalm 118. Uh, you, You thought he was a no one, so you rejected him. Actually, he was the most precious part of the building. He was the chief cornerstone, God's chosen one. You can't build anything without him. And he goes on to make it abundantly clear to them in verse 12. As clear as it is anywhere in the Bible that there is salvation in no one else. No name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Um, Now, that line right there is what we call exclusive. And uh, exclusivity is not particularly popular at this time in history. Um, Which is actually true. It's like, it usually historically hasn't been a problem. Actually, in most of the world, it's not a problem, but here and now, in 21st century America and Western Europe, it's a problem. Um, you know we, we believe there's you know usually only one way to get to multiple places, but we believe every way gets us to God to heaven. You can believe that, but that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not Christianity. If someone tells you Christianity is. You can believe anything you want to and you get to heaven. Well, that is a religious thought. That is some version of spirituality, but that is not Christianity. Christianity is that no one can get to heaven, especially not yourself based on your own efforts. And that our, our situation was so dire that apart from God taking flesh and coming down and living a full, perfect life and then dying Innocently on a cross, that none of us would have any hope at all. That's Christianity. Christianity is there is no one like Jesus. He is utterly unique. And that there is a way. There didn't have to be a way. God wasn't bound to give us a way because we spent our whole lives walking away. But He made a way. And we can take it or leave it. That's Christianity. And, um,. If we believe that, if we believe Jesus loves us that much to live for us and to die for us, to bring us back into the family, then we should share with others. We should care about others enough to tell them. I know it's not necessarily popular or fun uh, to do so. um, But if we believe it's true and we believe, uh, really, if if we care about the people around us, we'll tell them. Uh, Penn Gillette is a magician. You may be familiar with him. He's part of a duo. He's also a pretty well-known atheist. And he's gone on record about this topic. And he's quoted as saying, I've always said that I do not respect people who don't share their faith. He uses the word proselytize, which is like the harshest version of share your faith. Um, if you believe that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would be socially awkward, well, how much do you have to hate someone to not share? How much do you have to hate them to believe that everlasting life is possible and not to tell them? So here's someone who doesn't believe this at all, who's saying, Look, if you believe this is true and you don't share it with others, you're not caring for them. You're not caring for them. It's hard. It's hard to have the confidence to do that. It's hard to care enough to do that. And that's why these people here, what do they do? They pray, Lord, we need you. And in confident, dependent prayer, they get down, they pray to the sovereign Lord and, and they find in the sovereign Lord the confidence and the courage uh, to care and to share. And they know what the world's like. You see it in their prayer. You know, it's hostile out there. They're raging. They're, they're threatening us. But with utter dependence on Jesus, they pray. And what they're praying is for God to change the world. If you really think about what they're praying, they're, they're saying, okay, there are people that really want to destroy us and like, eliminate us. They don't pray for peace. They don't pray for safety. They pray that God would enable them to confidently, clearly share the good news that Jesus loves them. I mean, they're out to change the world. They're out to tell people that killed Jesus that Jesus loves them. Isn't that mind-blowing? Isn't that amazing? And uh, the last thing we see here, that living confidently involves confident prayer, it also means having a clear sense of call, knowing who does what. You see this at the end here in verses 29, 30, and 31. They say, Lord, would you grant us courage to continue speaking with boldness? Would you grant us the courage to continue to speak with boldness? Because... We're afraid. These threats are real. I'd rather go home and not say anything. So would you please grant us courage? In other words, it's part of God's plan that we share. Uh, And then they say, and you, God, you keep doing what you do. You do those miraculous things. You do those signs. God, you're the one that changes hearts. You're the one that changes lives. We can't do that. You do the things you do and give us the strength to do the things that we're supposed to do. And this is really important, friends, because if you think it's up to you to change people's hearts... Up to you to say, people. Then you pressure. Then you manipulate. And uh, that's that's why sharing the faith gets such a bad and ugly name, because we manipulate, or we shame, or we pressure people. Um, the whole idea of persuading others is sort of becoming increasingly taboo in our culture. Like some, there's a recent poll uh, among Christians your age. Where 50% of them said, like, yeah, I shouldn't try to convince anyone that my view of Jesus is right. Um, And yet, we live in an entirely pervasive society of persuasion. It's going on all the time. And a, a great example of this is the Super Bowl. So how many of you were at the Super Bowl party Sunday night? There's a lot of you, yeah. We were watching commercials, right? And uh, what are Super Bowl Bowl commercials aimed at? They're aimed at your loyalty. They want you. They want you. They want your money, right? Um, And so, um, you know, the Avengers Infinity War ad, um, Thanos snapped all the other ads into dust. It was by far the most impressive. Um, But, but, the most moving involved a football coach named Anthony Lynn chargers head coach who uh, the commercial has him standing a uh, among a bunch of first responders you know um, firemen and emts and such and he's relaying a story about how he had a tragic car accident in 2005 and how he could have died and uh, at that point as he's talking uh two of them step forward and introduce themselves and then a third one and they're, they're telling him we were your first responders and this big, muscular, intimidating football coach breaks into tears. It's powerfully moving. It's beautiful. These are the people that saved him. It's, it's a wonderful, moving, beautiful picture of what salvation looks like. And then, Verizon. America's most reliable network. Man, I'm so, I'm, sma- I'm angry. <laughs> Verizon, you had nothing to do with this nothing whatsoever. You are manipulating me. You get no credit. You get no credit at all for this beautiful story. Why should I give you an ounce of credit for the fact these people saved Anthony Lynn? That kind of thing is going on around you all the time. That kind of persuasion is going on all the time. It has no linear logic whatsoever. Let me make an impression. Oh, you like that impression? You should love us. Um, Man, you are being manipulated and persuaded all the time in our culture. And you have no problem with it usually. But you should, maybe. As you can tell, I have a problem with it. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, telling people that historically God took flesh, lived and died for them because he loved them, that's not okay? What? How is that not okay? Okay. How is it not okay, friends? I know. We don't want to do it because we're afraid. But we have a God that's in charge, and he's good. He gives us courage. I want to finish with a story. I, I, uh, I started with a sixth-grade version of myself. That's a terrible place to leave you. I want to leave you with something a little more closer to your experience, and, uh, and that's a different student. Uh, about five years ago, uh, God brought to us a very special young lady uh, from rural Wisconsin, who, uh, <laughs> from, from her first day here, it was pretty clear to me that neither this school's academics nor this school's social life were too big for her. I don't remember ever seeing her stressed, hardly ever. School was pretty easy, and she was sort of a social animal. And everyone liked her. I think that's pretty true. Everyone liked her, for a good reason. What became pretty clear to me uh, her first year and some of her second year is that, uh, yeah, she was popular, but man, she cared a lot. By the way, I got her permission to share the story. Uh, <laughs> so that's the way it works. Uh, man, she cared a lot about what people thought about her, an awful lot. So even though she loved Jesus, she was terribly afraid to tell them anything about Jesus. And she was afraid to invite them to RUF, because you might not know this, there are some people here that are not cool like me. <laughs> and uh, what will my friends think if they come? And that means for a, a good long while, she, she, she didn't put these two parts of her life together. And then over a summer and the beginning of a fall, going into her sophomore year, she, she really wrestled with this. If I really believe Jesus loved me this much, to live for me and die for me. If this is really true, and these are really my friends, Shouldn't I tell them? Shouldn't I invite them? And so she started doing that. She started doing it. She started telling them. She started bringing them. And uh, and they started coming. And one of them that came came for like three years in a row. He usually sat over there every week. And uh, he's an atheist. He's still an atheist. Um. And he would tell you that. I'm not calling him something that he doesn't, he wouldn't put on himself. But he came because he wanted to know what Christianity was about. And he came because he had a community here that loved him. And uh, you you don't have to take my word for it. You can go back and listen to our uh, podcast from our grad banquet at the end of last year. If you don't know it, we record all these things. That's what they say. And you can hear his own story about how he joined our group and loved it because he had a safe place here to hear the gospel and he was cared for by people. Friends, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this because you have a God that's big enough that you don't have to be afraid. And you can care for people enough to tell them and to invite them. All right, let's pray. Good Lord Jesus, thank you so much for uh, these people. Thank you for the people that have invited them.